You're listening to Down From Heaven, a podcast that covers the history of the 11th Airborne Division from World War II through today. I'm your host, Jeremy Holm. Thank you for joining me today. Let's jump right in. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Jeremy Holm. I am an 11th Airborne Division historian, as well as the editor of the online museum for the Angels, 511PIR.com. My grandfather, First Lieutenant Andrew Carrico, served with the Angels in World War II, so I was uh, I was pretty lucky to grow up around such an amazing man and listen to stories of the Angels long before I really began researching this historic division. I'm also the author of the book When Angels Fall, the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment in World War II. Um, I definitely invite you to check that one out. It's available on Amazon and most online book retailers. I am currently working on the first book in our two-volume series on the history of the 11th Airborne Division in World War II, and it will be titled Down from Heaven. Um, Our anticipation is that that will hit the shelves in fall of 2022. So if you'd like to be on the notifications list for that, I'll put a link down below in the description. I also wanted to thank everyone for the wonderful reception for our video, 11th Airborne Division Facts in 11 Minutes. Thank you for all the wonderful comments and uh, the messages we've been receiving. Um, If you haven't seen that yet, I'll put a link for that down below as well. And with the recent activation of the 11th Airborne Division in Alaska, I received so many great messages from family members of angels um, from World War II on through today. And I just want to put this out there. If you have any photos or letters or um, wartime uh, documents, diaries, or even um, post-war veterans interviews, I would love to see those for the angels. So um, you can contact me through the website you see on the screen right now. Just shoot me an email. And I'd love to chat about maybe incorporating those stories and, and photos into our future videos and publications as well. So with all that housekeeping out of the way, let's dive right into our topic for the day. Um, today, we're going to discuss Task Force Gypsy, uh, the last airborne operation of World War II. Now, if you're like me, you've probably seen um, articles or listen to podcasts that discuss how Operation Varsity was the last uh, airborne operation of war, but actually it wasn't. Varsity was an enormous campaign. It involved over 16,000 paratroopers and thousands of aircraft, making it the largest single-day and single-location airborne deployment uh, in, in World War II, of course. So if Varsity was not the largest or the last airborne operation in World War II, what was? Well, the answer is simply the 11th Airborne Division's Operation Task Force Gypsy uh, in, in Apari on Luzon. Operation Varsity kicked off on March 24th, 1945 in Germany, whereas the Angels' landings at it at Apari Luzon occurred on June 23, 1945, nearly three months after Varsity. So the honor of making the final jump of, of the war belongs to the 11th Airborne Division. The 11th was also scheduled to drop on Japan uh, during Operation Olympic, a, com- a campaign that was aborted due to Japan's uh, surrender, thankfully. Um, and hundreds of airborne troopers from the European theater were actually scheduled to transfer over to the Pacific to the 11th Airborne to participate in that campaign. But again, luckily Japan surrendered first. So let's dig into this last deployment of World War II, Task Force Gypsy. Now, when Nazi Germany surrendered on May 7th, 1945, the Pacific War was still going strong. Um, Yes, there were some in Japan's governing bodies that were leaning towards surrender, since victory was becoming an increasingly hopeless prospect. But while countries around the world were celebrating victory in Europe Day on May 8th, 1945, Allied forces in the Pacific Theater were still engaged in or planning to launch additional operations on Leyte, Luzon, Central Burma, Okinawa, Mindanao. You get the idea. So while shouts of peace, peace, the war is over, we're shouting, you know, all over the streets of Europe. 
and through the United States, the Pacific War would go on for another three months and cost the Allies over 100,000 casualties. At the time the war ended in Europe, the 11th Airborne Division was still heavily engaged in the battle to liberate Luzon in the Pacific. Uh, their commander was Major General Joseph May Swing. Now, Swing's angels had fought their way inland from Nexubu up to Tagaitai Ridge, where uh, their amphibious landing force met up with the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment, which dropped on Tagaitai on February 3rd, um, after which the Angels pushed north to participate in the, um, the bloody battle for Manila, which, if you know anything about that, was extremely destructive for the city. Um, the Angels took heavy casualties in liberating the city and in their operations to clear southern and southeastern Luzon. Um, things were starting to slow down in early June when the Angels were given time to recuperate and incorporate new um, replacements. Uh, some of General Swing's frontline companies had experienced 70% casualties, and the percentage for the division as a whole at this time was 18%, which was higher than most infantry divisions in the Pacific Theater. The 11th Airborne's short rest in June would not last, however. The Japanese were still gathering in defensive pockets throughout northern and northeastern Luzon. Uh, one of those pockets was centralized in northern Luzon, and there was some concern that, that the 50,000 remaining soldiers of Japan's Shobu Group could head north towards Apari and use the harbor there where you know what was left of the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy could affect some sort of Dunkirk rescue. And in fact, there were small groups that were being picked up at night by destroyers and other small craft and then taken uh, to places of safety. So the idea was, you know, if the Japanese get out of here just like Dunkirk, they can live to fight another day. So while the Angels enjoyed their short rest in June, General Yamashita had already initiated the abandonment of the Kagayan Valley and he was having his troops withdrawal into the um, Cordillera Central. General Yamashita had planned to move his forces through three defensive lines around Luzon's fertile um, Kagayan Valley, which it was kind of like an inverted triangle. It was encircled in the north um, by the Babuyan Channel, and on the west by the Cordillera Central Hills, and to the east by the Sierra Madre mountain range. Nicknamed the Tiger of Malaya and the Beast of Bataan, Yamashita had deployed the Shobu group around the large valley's perimeter, it was a natural stronghold full of gorges, razorbacked ridges, and mountaintops. It was just this, he knew it was going to be a natural fortress and very difficult for the Allies to take. And to give his men time to gather and stockpile resources um, from the valley itself, Yamashita was coordinating uh, a slow war of attrition rather than decisive actions with his forces. Um, both Yamashita and the Allies knew that the longer the Japanese forces had to prepare their defenses, of course, the more costly it would be to take the valley and the surrounding mountains. So while the 37th Infantry was attacking up uh, along Route 5 and to the west, the 6th Division was blocking any Japanese trying to escape along Highway 4, U.S. 6th Army's Walter Kruger uh, wanted to prevent any escape by sea, and so he wanted to box the enemy into the valley. So to do so, Kruger uh, elected to send in the 11th Airborne Division to, to close the valley's northern end. Um, he hoped that the Angels Apari operation would help eliminate one of, the, one of Japan's last standing armies in the Philippines, and, and therefore move the Allies one step closer to Tokyo. So on June 20th, 1945, the 11th Airborne received a verbal warning um, to, prepare for a to prepare a combat team for a drop near Apari. Two days later, the official orders came in stating that the drop would occur on the following day, June 23rd. So this combined force would be known as the Gypsy Task Force, or Task Force Gypsy, depending on how they say it and who's saying it. Um, hindsight, of course, is always 2020, and the 11th Airborne Division's uh, involvement in the Apari campaign was felt by many of those battle-worn angels to just be a huge waste of time and energies. General Swing's veterans were more than willing to fight, and that was never in question. Even General Walter Kruger himself said, 
that the Angels were the fightingest outfit he had ever seen. And an after-action report noted that morale was excellent during the entire operation, which it was. The reason so many Angels called Task Force Gypsy pointless was because everyone already knew that 6th Army units had art and, and attached Filipino guerrilla units had already uh, secured most of the southern portions of the valley. And then on the day the 11th Airborne was given their official orders to drop on Apari, um, the 33rd Infantry Division's Task Force Connolly entered Apari itself unopposed. Now, estimates did put 40,000 Japanese in the northern parts of the valley. So yes, there was reason for concern with that. Uh, General Kruger declared that the seizure of Apari without opposition by elements of the Connolly Task Force, together with the almost unopposed advance of the 37th Division, indicated clearly that the time had come for mounting the airborne troops to block the enemy's retreat in the Kagayan Valley. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In the decades since, many of the angels uh, asked this question, who exactly were they going to block? General Kruger wanted the angels to land at Apari and push south to block enemy forces heading north, but virtually all of General Yamashita's forces had already headed south and west. Yamashita's plan to establish three defensive lines throughout the valley had fallen apart, so he issued new orders telling his forces to withdraw into a last-stand area that he would set up along the inhospitable valley of the Asin River. So you can start to see why many of the angels called op the Apari operation just a gobi, a general officer's bright idea. Those feelings generally were pushed uh, towards General Kruger, um, since his 6th Army was scheduled to hand over operational control to General Robert Eichelberger's 8th Army on July 1st. Since he only had a few weeks to act, the Apari drop was viewed by some as a way for General Kruger to finish the race before he had to pass the baton on to General Eichelberger. The Captain Stephen Cavanaugh, the executive officer for the 511th PIR's 1st Battalion, felt the responsibility lay a little bit higher. He said, I felt the operation to be more of a newspaper stunt by General MacArthur's headquarters more than anything else. Wherever the blame lies for the Angels Apari operation, word of their new mission came to the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment on June 21st, while the division was bivouacked near the Lip airstrip. Again, they had received verbal orders on the 20th, and General Swing passed those to the 511th on the 21st. And this is where Captain Cavanaugh was actually settling into his new role as Executive Officer of 1st Battalion. And his new CO was the uh, regiment's former S3, Major Frederick Wright. In early briefings, uh, Captain Cavanaugh and Major Wright learned that their understrength 1st Battalion would form the main bulk of the Gypsy Task Force, which General Swing ordered be composed of all Camp McCall veterans. And again, that's where the 11th Airborne Division was formed, was Camp McCall. So this would include the 511th PIR's 1st Battalion, with 3rd Battalion's G&I companies attached. And then the supporting units would include Battery C of the 457th Parachute Field Artillery Battalion, um, elements of the 511th PIR's Demolitions Platoon, or the Suicide Squad, 1st uh, Platoon from the 127th Airborne Engineer Battalion's Company C, 2nd Platoon from the 221st Medical Company, and various members of the division's 511th Signals, Language Detachment Team, uh, the CIC, the Counterintelligence, the 11th Parachute Maintenance Company, and the 7th uh, Ordnance Company. So the Angels plan to drop 507 paratroopers 7,000 um, yards southeast of Apari, um, after which one CG-13 and six towed Waco CG-4 gliders would land carrying the remaining troops along with their heavy weapons. Um, you know, of course, flamethrowers. And, and it would also you know, carry the heavy equipment, the radios, the jeeps, and, and so forth. So this made Task Force Gypsy the only airborne operation in the Pacific Theater during World War II to use gliders. 
Once assembled, the task force's uh, 1,030 men would push south to connect with the 37th Infantry Division, and then they would eliminate any enemy forces caught in between uh, those two columns on the way. Now, during briefings, intelligence warned that the enemy strength near the, near the drop zone was unknown, and that there were some heights surrounding the drop zone, and there was some concern that the Japanese could shell the, uh, the, the DZ. Um, so clearing the area with with haste was obviously emphasized, although um, Fifth Air Force would um, fighter bombers would come in and drop smoke to the east and the south to conceal the drop zone from those heights, um, hopefully just adding that extra level of protection for the, the jumpers. And while General Walter Kruger initially balked due to his age, General Swing gave overall command of Gypsy Task Force to 26-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Henry Burgess. Uh, now, Burgess was the 511th PIR's executive officer. And he was famous for participating in the as a major in the division's um, historic raid on the Los Banos internment camp. And if you haven't, if you don't know anything about that, or if you'd like to check out our video on the Los Banos raid, I'll put a link down below for that as well. Um, but General Swing, when he was notified about Burgess's promotion, I thought this was kind of cool. He actually went to Hank and he took um, the oak leaves that he had worn as a colonel, and he gave it to Henry Burgess and said, "You've been promoted," which you know, Colonel Burgess then kept those for the rest of his life and said it was a, a treasured memento from his general. Now, again, the Angels received their verbal orders for the Apari operation on June 20th. So that same day, um, Colonel Burgess and 1st Battalion's Major Frederick Wright and then uh, Wright's executive officer, Captain Stephen Cavanaugh, they all boarded a B-25 bomber um, for a flight over the drop zone to do some recon. And as the craft approached, um, you know, it dropped down to a few hundred feet so they could get a closer look. And Captain Cavanaugh was a very experienced jumper at this point. So he crawled um, to the tail gunner's position on the bomber so he could look out through the plexiglass. And, you know, what he saw was just, it looked like the, the DZ was just overgrown rice paddies and fields and so forth. And then he could also see those heights um, that intelligence was worried the Japanese were on. And he could see, yeah, that's definitely close, going to be a problem. But, um, you know, he and Major Wright and Colonel Burgess all declared the DZ to be acceptable. So that plan was kind of set in motion at that point. So that same day, General Swing, uh, the 511th PIR's uh, commanding officer, Colonel uh, Edward Lottie, um, they made another recon flight and they gave their approval. So the next day on June 21st, a small group of the 511th um, PIR's pathfinders dropped near the DZ and, um, you know, they just wait there to you know, pop the green smoke grenade so they could mark it for the incoming flights. Now, the original date for the drop was June 25th, but due to the 37th Infantry's rapid advances up the valley, um, the, the operation was moved to June 23rd, and this gave the Angels only about 36 hours to prepare. And then on June 22nd, General Kruger himself showed up at the Lippa airstrip to, you know, review their efforts and, uh, you know, just have meetings with General Swing. Now, during one of those briefings or meetings with General Swing, uh, Colonel Henry Burgess reported in. And again, this is the first time that General Kruger and Colonel Burgess had met. And you have to remember, General Kruger had some initial reservations about Colonel Burgess just because he was so young. So General Kruger asked Colonel Burgess, he said, how old are you? And, you know, Hank just said, I'm, I'm 26. And General Kruger then turned to General Swing and he asked if he didn't have a more experienced and older officer to lead the operation. And General Swing said, well, yes, Colonel Lottie is 31. But if the task force runs into problem, uh, into a problem, Colonel Lottie will be remaining behind. And then he will, you know, with the reserve force and he will lead the rest of the regiment in on a jump or, um, to, you know, rescue their comrades and so forth. So kind of funny, General Kruger then asked if 
you know, Colonel Burgess, I think he's trying to find some reason to trust this young officer. And he said, did you attend West Point? And Colonel Burgess says, no, but I did receive a fine Harvard education, which, you know, of course, made both the generals laugh. And, you know, General Kruger decided to just trust uh, General Swing and Colonel Lottie's judgment. And he, you know, allowed Colonel Burgess to remain in charge of uh, Task Force Gypsy. So at about three o'clock the next morning on June 23rd, the angels who would be dropping on Apari uh, made their way through the messes for what they call, you know, their condemned men's breakfast of steak and eggs, which I want to point out for a lot of these angels, this was the first real food they'd eaten um, in over a year. They've been living off C and K rations. So, you know, it, it, it should have been this delicious meal. But one of the troopers kind of told me, he said it wasn't as good as it sounded. So uh, nor nor was General Walter Kruger's pregame speech that he gave to the angels out on the tarmacs. Um, the men, ex- you know, they respected General Kruger, but there was really very little enthusiasm for this operation at the time. So with all these developments, uh, plus these 37th Infantry Division's rapid advances up the valley and continued elimination of the Shobu group pockets that they were finding, the Angels just questioned the necessity of all their work and their labors. They were willing to fight. That was never in question. They just wondered, you know, why are we doing this? But orders were orders. So the 511th PIR's 1st Battalion Paratroopers and the attached units uh, that would be jumping were trucked to the airfield at about, you know, 430 uh, under the watchful eyes of, you know, General Swing, General Kruger, and of course, Colonel Lottie. Now, the transports were provided by the 317th Troop Carrier Group, uh, the Jungle Skippers, which would fly 54 C-47s, uh, 14 C-46s, and then tow the seven gliders. So after strapping into their parachutes and getting all their gear on, the angels kind of waddled, you know, they're just heavy laden. If you've ever, you know, really studied how much gear they carried, it's incredible. They waddled their way towards their aircraft and, you know, the, the air crews helped them on board and they sat down in their canvas seats and then they just kind of waited, um, you know, some smoking, some forcing jokes. Um, you know, they didn't expect really to see any combat on this op, but you know, there's always that that nervousness for jumping into a combat zone. Um, and of course, it was it was already hot in the morning. So they're just sitting there sweating in the planes. And then you know, about 15 minutes after boarding, you know, they, they watched General Swing. Uh, driving on the tarmac onto the tarmac with Winston Churchill's personal representative, General Charles Gardner. Um, and then they kind of watched the, the two generals kind of go from plane to plane. And while the angels generally appreciated General Swing's, you know, concern and, and you know, final words of encouragement, there was there was one paratrooper from 1st Battalion's headquarters who did not. Um, you know, Captain Stephen Cavanaugh, he, he told me about this and he wrote that I remember quite well that in my aircraft, his greeting was met by someone replying out of the darkness, you know, away from the door, uh, with a remark that was not quite publishable. I'm sure it took the general somewhat by surprise. Some of the men of the 511th were not impressed by Swing's concern. Again, this one trooper's response is probably based on the fact that the angels kind of knew that their, their jump was kind of pointless, but also General Swing admitted right there in the plane that the operation wasn't really necessary because the Japanese in the valley were already well contained. So you can probably use your imagination to think of some of the things that that angel might have said. But um, nevertheless, General, General Swing left the plane with, you know, his typical, like, you know, tally-ho. And, uh, you know, the Gypsy Task Force aircraft, you know, they all started their engines a little after six o'clock. And then, you know, they all took off from the airfields and then they rendezvoused in the air and approached the, D, the DZ um, about nine o'clock in the morning. And, you know, the 11th Airborne's Pathfinders in the ground, you know, they, they pop their green smoke grenades and then just, you know, started marking the drop zone and so forth. So minutes later, the jump masters herded their sticks out the door um, just after sunrise, which, you know, provided the angels. They said it was a pretty beautiful view 
uh, over the horizon on their descent. And one report noted that the drop pattern was excellent, but their landings, that was not so good. And those landings were watched by General Swing and his G3, Colonel Douglas Quant, and also the 511th PIR's Colonel Lottie, and, and they were all circling the airfield, or, or the DZ in a B-25. Now, Captain Cavanaugh explained what happened. He said that the ground upon which we landed had been baked by the sun and was hard as concrete. Again, that was something that they couldn't really tell on the recon flights. And so you look at all the officers that had approved the DZ, and nobody knew this. So as a result, the task force actually suffered... Um, two fatalities from parachute malfunctions, and then over 70 jump uh, injuries. There was 15 to 25 mile per hour gust of wind on the drop zone, which would push the troopers into trees or other uneven ground and even some buildings and so forth. So at the time, 15 miles an hour was considered uh, maximum safe velocity for winds in a drop zone. So while no enemy fired upon them, you know they, they did have to get their casualties evacuated and so forth. Um, but some of those paratroopers in the ground experienced some moments of fear when the gliders came in and uh captain Kavanaugh said the gliders landed directly on our dz and you know after you know that all happened and, and they got things unloaded they assembled about 9 45 uh again no contact with the enemy and then they the column immediately started moving south at about 10 10 in the morning now again this was after they had taken care of their 72 uh jump casualties that were evacuated to the 24th portable surgical hospital um so the column's moving south and originally, the 511th PIR's G&I companies were going to remain behind to secure Apari and then their flanks. But again, that was already secured by Task Force Connolly, Filipino guerrilla groups, and so forth. So uh, Colonel Henry Burgess, in charge of the task force, just decided to bring everybody with them and just move everybody south. So Task Force Connolly moved south as well. And you know their, their assignment was to really protect the Angels' east flank. Uh, and its main elements. Um, the, the main elements of Task Force Connolly were the 2nd Battalion of the Philippine 11th Infantry, um, which would have some very, very, very small skirmishes with Japanese along the route. Um, you know, usually they would report back, you know, killing one or two enemy in these skirmishes. So Task Force Gypsy had the Cagayan River on, on the one side and Task Force Connolly over on the other, and it's supporting 11th Infantry units, um, you know, acting as a flank. But, um, and, and, and this explains why Task Force Gypsy and Task Force, Task Force Connolly's, um, you know, staffs eventually just combined to facilitate operations in the next couple of days. But the 11th Airborne's column was also joined by Company B of the historic 6th Ranger Battalion, which was, you know, famous for participating in the, in the raid on Cabanatuan um, on January 30th, 1945. So, in fact, most of the Japanese um, POWs that were captured during task force gypsy were captured by the sixth rangers and then they were turned over to the 11th airborne division so the angels moved south with their supporting units and secured dugo and patrolled the surrounding areas that evening and, and again that's june 23rd so they just dug in for the night um so the next day june 24th task force gypsy started out at about 6 30 and continued south on foot uh until their lead elements were actually stopped on the road by an american second lieutenant who was just in this clean you know starched uh, uniform, which of course surprised them, and the jungle and and the lieutenant said that he was sent by Colonel David Blackburn of the Filipino 11th Infantry, which had already secured the area they were moving through. So while the 511th First uh, Battalion moved off the road and formed a perimeter, Major Frederick Wright accompanied the American lieutenant um, through the jungle back to Blackburn's well-established camp, and there the Angels discussed with Colonel Blackburn Task Force Gypsy's mission, and Blackburn just let the paratroopers knew, know that the Japanese had 
already withdrawn into the Sierra Madre Mountains to the east. You know, Blackburn then said to Major Wright and his staff, he said, I'm kind of surprised that this operation was even ordered. And, you know, Major Wright said, we know we're kind of in the same boat. So anyway, Major Wright returned to 1st Battalion, um, which then continued south along the road before, you know, about four miles before digging in for the evening at uh, Gadaran. Now, one thing I want to point out, which which a lot of the angels thought was kind of interesting and they enjoyed this, but there were two Red Cross representatives that actually parachuted in on June 24th. And then it, they, they kind of set up along the road. Um, and as 1st Battalion came past, they could, you know, 1st Battalion could get uh, candy, coffee, donuts, and just, you know, bits of news from, from the Red Cross. And they just thought, well, that's something you don't normally see on a combat operation. You know, not that anyone complained, of course. So on day three, June 25th, the task force continued south. Again, no real resistance uh, before reaching the Duman River near modern Movismo. And, you know, since the 150 foot um, steel truss bridge had been bombed out, um, the initial angels just crossed over on bamboo rafts and then the, the engineers later would build a pontoon bridge so the trucks, the few trucks that they had, could continue shuttling um, troops from the rear of the column up. And they just they would do a little bit of shuttling throughout this march. But a lot of troopers just walked the whole way. Um, you know, Private Burt Marshall of the 511th PIR's B Company, it's kind of funny, when they dug in for the night just on the other side of the bridge, because it you know, took so long to cross, um, he said they had a new lieutenant in B Company in his platoon. And this new lieutenant said, you know, he wanted Bert to go down to a bend in the road and then just make sure no Japanese came up. And, you know, Bert was Bert was a veteran at this point. He'd been through the Leyte campaign, um, the battle for Manila and everything afterwards up until the Apari operation. So, you know, Bert's kind of looking at this new lieutenant being like, uh-huh. And then the, then the lieutenant said, like, I'm going to tie a piece of string on my finger and then you're going to hold the other end when you're out there. And if you see any Japanese, you tug on my finger and then we'll know they're out there. And so Bert, of course, kind of scoffed at this idea. And then he just said, a string on my finger. He said, if, I, if something is coming, I will be shooting my rifle. And they sure as heck will know that something is coming down the road. I'm not going to pull on any string. I'm going to pull, this, I'm going to pull the trigger of this rifle. So then the new lieutenant just said, well, it's kind of something I read that the Marines were doing earlier in the war. And, you know, Bert just you know, said, okay, whatever. And he just went off and did guard duty for the night and nothing happened. First Battalion's executive officer, Captain Stephen Cavanaugh, joked that the mosquitoes were the only opposition we encountered. So about this time, a Philippine army officer arrived um, at the head of the column and, you know, was looking for Major Wright. And he said that he wanted Major Wright to accompany him back to his base, an invitation that, you know, after some debate, he and his executive officer, Captain Stephen Cavanaugh, decided to accept. So they left the battalion in good order. And the two officers followed their guide across the Cagayan River and then through the jungle for, you know, about another half hour or so before they were welcomed into the headquarters of the Philippine infantry itself. And Major Wright and Captain Kavanaugh, you know, just said like, wow, they're, they're living pretty well. You know, lights are on and electricity is running and, you know, it's a, it's a nice little camp here. And they're out there, you know, camped on the road and living off C and K rations or mostly K rations. But um, you know, Major Wright and then Captain Kavanaugh were led to a briefing room where, again, they had another meeting with the Philippine officers and uh, just to review the enemy situation of the area. And again, all the Filipinos were just saying like, hey, the Japanese are gone. They're not here. Um, they're already heading south and east. And Major Wright and Captain Kavanaugh said, we know, but we're still moving south. So um, they, they did say that after the briefing, the Filipinos uh, fed the angels uh, fried chicken, which is a delicacy they had not enjoyed for 
a long time, they said, and they said it was just delicious. So then the Filipinos uh, invited the two angels to overnight in the camp. And after some debate, they said, okay, we're going to do that. And, and then it's kind of funny because Captain Kavanaugh went on to have a long, illustrious career in the army. I mean, he was chief of, of Maxog in Vietnam. And, you know, and, and decades later, he's looking back and he just said, like, to this day, I don't know why my battalion, my battalion commanding officer or I allowed ourselves to be away from our men so long. Um, but I imagine the temptation to sleep in a cot and actually a real bed for the first time in well over a year probably helped persuade them. So after breakfast on the morning of June 26th, Major Wright and Captain Kavanaugh went back to the column and everybody was up and they'd have their, you know, their K ration breakfast. And so they're moving south. And, um, you know, Captain Kavanaugh and Major Wright did brief the other company commanders on what they had learned from the 11th infantry meetings and briefings that they had had. But again, everybody kind of knew, yeah, the Japanese are gone. We're not really finding anybody. So they continued south um, for several hours until word came over the radio that the 37th infantry division was only a few miles away. Now the 37th CO was 52 year old General Robert Beitler um, and General Beitler's son, um, Lieutenant Robert Beitler was serving in the 511th PIR's B Company or Gypsy White as the communications officer. So he's in Task Force Gypsy. So, you know, uh, you know, Major Wright and and um Colonel Burgess, they decide to put Lieutenant Beitler at the front of their column so that he'll be the first one to meet um his his general dad when they cross uh, when they reach Akala and cross the Parrot River. And uh, you can see the two columns meeting in this photo. Now, a regimental yearbook for the 511th PIR says that the meeting of the Gypsy Task Force and the 37th Division was a fitting climax to the six-month-long Luzon campaign. Now, after Colonel Henry Burgess reported to General Beitler, the general turned and made a snide remark to First Corps uh, Commander General Ennis, B Ennis Bull Swift sorry, um, that the 37th Infantry had saved the 511th Parachute Infantry. So, of course, Colonel Burgess was offended by this and he grew red-faced and, and he firmly declared in front of everybody there that he was under orders to save the 37th Infantry and that his paratroopers had outmarched the 37th Infantry and their armored support. Well, this, of course, angered General Beitler. And, you know, before he could say anything, standing off to the side, General Innes uh, Swift laughed and he said to Colonel Burgess, he said, well, you sound like one of, Je of Joe Swing's boys. And, you know, that kind of broke up the, the hostility there and ended the conversation. And I don't know if Colonel Burgess knew it at the time, but General Innes, uh, General Swift was actually a good friend of General Swing. General Swift then put Colonel Burgess uh, in charge of Task Force Connolly and the Angels and Task Force, Con Task Force Connolly's Filipino guerrilla units um, patrolled the area on June 27th, and they destroyed a, a small handful of the enemy before digging in for the night. Um, you know, but that afternoon, Colonel Burgess actually radioed General uh, Swing's headquarters to request air transportation for his men. You know, after all, you know, Colonel Burgess knew that the, that the 37th Infantry was being resupplied by C-47s out of Clark Field, and Burgess and his men had just marched for four days, and he felt that his men, you know, deserved an airlift back to, to the division, and it was only going to add 20 minutes to the flight time for each aircraft. Now, no answer, no official answer came back from General Swing's headquarters, but once the 11th Airborne's Task Force Gypsy met up with the 37th Infantry, 6th Army's General Walter Kruger could then tell 
uh, General MacArthur that all the major cities and road networks on Luzon had been secured. So, you know, General Beitler had Task Force Gypsy patrol the roads and trails between the Parrot River and Apari from Route 5 to about, you know, 5,000 yards eastward um, on June 28th and the 29th. But really, all the angels found were abandoned enemy uh, defensive positions and vehicles and supplies. So the Japanese were gone, but captured documents uh, showed that intelligence's uh, estimates had been correct, that there were about 4,000 Japanese in the northern part of the valley. However, by the time the angels dropped in Apari, again, most of those enemy forces had evacuated the area. So after their four-day march, the 11th Airborne's uh, combat team was relieved by the 129th Infantry Regiment. So Colonel Burgess led his combined force on another day's march uh, towards a dirt towards a dirt airstrip. And, and upon arrival on June 28th, um, Hank went to General Beitler's uh, headquarters to use the radio to call division headquarters again to discuss air transportation for his men. And Burgess said, 37th Division has 60 empty planes uh, leaving daily for Clark Field. Request you contact Army, RE, our flying to Clark or Lipa. Well, the division did contact the Army and because a few hours later, a colonel uh, from 6th Army headquarters showed up uh, on one of those planes in response to Burgess's request. And he told, uh, he told Hank, no. The officer then told Burgess to turn his angels around and march the 45 miles back to Apari, where they would be met by U.S. naval shipping, and then the ships would take them around Luzon, south to Manila, and Burgess's men would then have to march or be trucked an additional 80 miles overland to Lipa. And you can imagine and you can understand why the angels, of course, thought this was a terrible idea. Um, especially since General Beitler and you know General Beitler's 37th Infantry said, yeah, we have no problem with you using our air transports to get your men back. Go ahead. And Colonel Burgess himself noted, there was no way I was going to march my, ba my battalion back up the valley some 55 miles in midday heat of 120 degrees in the shade for three days if we could ride those airplanes. Now, B-511's Tech Sergeant Alan Robbins displayed the general mood and condition of his comrades after their long march. He said, it was rough walking and my feet were in bad shape. There were blisters on my blisters. So in true angel fashion, the 511th PIR supply officer, Major Lyman, Lyman Faulkner, uh, spoke with a friend of the division, Colonel John Lackey, whose third, uh, 317th Troop Carrier Group had flown the angels in. And they were also the ones flying in the supplies for the 37th Infantry Division. It was their planes that uh, Colonel Burgess wanted to use to fly back to Lipa. Now, no one knows exactly what was said, um, but Faulkner and the Angels, you know, they, the, the lore is that they bribed the 317th uh, pilots into carrying Task Force Gypsy back, um, you know, by, by giving them captured Japanese swords and rifles and battle flags and other souvenirs and so forth. So this, of course, saved Task Force Gypsy's men from their over 100-mile march alternative. So on June 20, 29th, the, uh, the footsore Angels gathered um, at the dirt airstrip to await their flights home. And, and, and although it took two days for this to happen, um, the angels began flying out on June, on July 1st and everyone was just happy to be flying and not walking home, of course. And with their successful return to Lipa, uh, general MacArthur declared the entire Island of Luzon is now liberated. Now, true to his nature, Colonel Burgess was on the last craft, um, coming back to Lipa at, uh, at 1430 on July 2nd. 
And, and although there were no vehicles to meet him, he just hitchhiked his way back to General Swing's headquarters to report in. And to his credit, Colonel Burgess was quick to uh, thank all the units that had participated with the Angels in the Apari operation. He said, excellent drop and resupply by 317th Troop Carrier Group and attached units was a major factor in the successful completion of our joint airborne operation. This force extends its gratitude to those units participating for their cooperation and efficiency. Now, glad to have survived another, you know, combat operation. Uh, Major Burgess and 1st Battalion's uh, Major Wright, you know, they led their, their angels back to, the, to the, uh, their camps around Lipa and to rest, re-equip, and integrate another batch of replacements that had come in. And these replacements were actually from the 541st Parachute Infantry Regiment, the Winged Panthers, which had just come over from the States. Um, you know, but, but even at that time, the angels were all discussing, like, you know, the Apari operation and questioning the necessity of it, of course. Now, tactically, it made sense. By taking Apari in its harbor, General Kruger and 6th Army would be denying Japan's forces both a hope for escape um, and a goal to unitedly withdraw towards. So this arguably bolstered um, a dispersal of enemy power and not a cons uh, consolidation. Um, and it was the perfect mission for the 11th Airborne Division. A vertical envelopment that um, would lead to a rapid dash against enemy forces to quickly seize objectives followed by meeting up with allied forces. I mean, it was the, the, the perfect, you know, airborne operation uh, on paper, at least. And with the 37th infantry pushing up the Valley and Colonel Volkland's guerrillas, um, striking the, you know, the surrounding mountain ranges, um, which the mountain ranges acted as natural barriers enemy. So, you know, General Kruger felt that dropping the 11th airborne near Pari um, and having it move South would just create this perfect box to track the Japanese in. But, as we know, General Yamashita had already left the box. And, and it makes sense, too, because, you know, Apari, like the, the Kagayan Valley itself, is just flat, indefensible land. And General Yamashita ordered his forces to withdraw for a last stand in the valley along the Essene River um, between routes 4 and 11. And other Shobu Group units had retreated into the Sierra Madres to the east. So as a result, the 11th Airborne's Task Force Gypsy uh, only saw a few enemy stragglers in northern Luzon. And Colonel Burgess wrote decades later, the Apari operation was one long, hot march, but militarily, it was not difficult. And for many of the battle-hardened angels, you know, Apari was just part of the job, but, you know, and they would have fought fiercely had it come to that. Um, but the lack of combat engagements during, during the operation left the angels feeling just a little bit disgruntled almost. You know, when I asked them, a lot of them would just say like, yeah, I went on Apari, I jumped and I marched and that was all we did. Um, although they did enjoy knowing that they had participated in the last airborne um, operation of the war. Um, they also liked adding another combat jump to their resume. And, and you know, there were some troopers in Task Force Gypsy that had actually made all three uh, combat jumps with the 11th Airborne Division. Um, that was Tagaytay Ridge, um, the Los Banos uh, raid, and then also now Apari. Um, but in the end, I think the 11th Airborne Division's commanding general, Major General Joseph May Swing, uh, made the best observation about Task Force Gypsy. He wrote home to his father-in-law, Peyton March, that the Apari op was just a case of too little, too late. He said, I pleaded with the 6th Army staff to drop the whole division in the Cagayan Valley two months ago when they were having such a hell of a time in the Balete Pass. Had they done so, we would have been on the Japs' tail and cleaned out the valley six weeks ago and saved a lot of casualties the other divisions had in making their frontal attacks. 
As it was, they let the Japs withdraw to the greater part of their garrison at the northern end of the valley, and unmolested, take them down to reinforce the defenders of the pass. And then General Swing added, Do you wonder that sometimes I think I'll lose my mind? Now, General Swing hit the mark. The reason the Angels' uh, task force gypsy and, and Apari operation is so often overlooked is because, simply, 6th Army took too long to deploy the division. As a result, most of the enemy had already, you know, headed for the hills. And so there was very little combat action um, for the angels on their march from Apari south. And some of the angels simply said that we don't get the attention for it because it wasn't sexy. It wasn't bloody. And, it, you know, there weren't explosions and so forth. It was just a long march that we did. So there you have it, the last airborne operation of World War II. Let me know your thoughts in, uh, in the comments below. And if you'd like to find out more about the 11th Airborne Division, please click on the links in the description below. Uh, or, and also subscribe to this channel and hit the notifications bell so uh, you'll be the first to know when we put out new videos on Angel History. Thanks for joining me today. And remember, down from heaven comes 11. Airborne all the way. To learn more about the history of the 11th Airborne Division, please subscribe to this podcast or visit www.11thairborne.com today. Or consider purchasing one of our books on the 11th Airborne in World War II. When Angels Fall, the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment in World War II, or Down from Heaven, the 11th Airborne Division in World War II, Volumes 1 and 2. All books are available wherever military history books are sold.